Hey there, Freedom Fighters. My name is Andrew Warner. I've always been an entrepreneur. I mean, really, from the time I was a kid, but professionally, uh, always an entrepreneur. And whenever I think about bigger businesses, there is um, a lack, lack of respect that I have, but also there's some awe there. And one of the businesses that I've been in most awe of is McKinsey. It's a company that bigger businesses look to for direction, for understanding, to sharpen their their view of how to run their businesses. And I always had the sense that the McKinsey people don't do business the way I do. They're much more rational. They're much more organized. They do what my professors at business school at NYU taught us to do, where I am much more like feeling things out and going with my gut. Well, Jeremy King, who you're about to meet, actually worked at McKinsey, which means the dude's super smart. But as he worked there, he realized they're not always using statistics and data and everything else that we expect them to use. He he realized that they're going with gut and that as much as we admire gut instinct as entrepreneurs, he thought, you know what, it could be done better. And he's created a company that does do better. Jeremy King has founded a test. What a test does is it allows companies to do market research, and it makes it ridiculously easy for them so that they could discover more about their target market, unlock growth, and we'll find out more about how that works thanks to and how he built up this business and how well it's doing thanks to my sponsor, HostGator. If you need a website hosted, go to hostgator.com slash Mixergy. Jeremy, I, I feel like it would help us if we understood a test through a case study. Give me a case study that would help us see what you're up to. Yeah, delighted to be here, and thank you for having me. So we're going to talk about Bloom and Wild, which is a European online flower delivery business. They started as a company that puts flowers in boxes that go to your letterbox, and they've simply grown massively from there to become the number one European online flowers business, celebrating every occasion using flowers. They use our product for all sorts of things, tracking trends in different markets, different competitors, underlying moves by segment that lead different consumers to like or love or buy or sell in different ways. But one thing they use a test for outside of all of that is to inform intuitions and dissolve doubts, to kind of put data behind big ideas and figure out how bold to be. And they made this incredibly bold move, which was to ban selling red roses at Valentine's Day, and this yielded a four times year-on-year revenue increase for them in the Valentine's Day period, which is one of the top-selling periods for flowers in Europe and indeed the world. So they had this idea that um, people but who to, give to red ban roses, to ban red roses, even this is the thing that we mostly give on Valentine's Day. Yeah, it's the number one selling skew. The number one product of Valentine's Day is red okay. roses, a dozen, half a dozen, five dozen, if yeah. you're flush with cash. Crazy. It's the number one product, and they ended up banning it because of data that they had from a test. Okay. How does how does the test get them that data? What is it that you do? Well, in this case, they they were really keen to know about two groups, people who give red roses and people who receive red roses at Valentine's Day. And they used our product to discover in a bunch of different European markets that people who give red roses, they kind of admit it's a last minute choice. It's a backup plan. It's lazy. They know it's overpriced and probably undervalued. They know that it's not particularly environmentally sustainable because there's only one time of the year where red roses are really popular. They probably bought them in the gas station on the way to the Valentine's Day meeting with their partner. Ah. And then they hand them across with a, with a sort of feeling of disappointment and disdain. Um, 
people who receive red roses kind of admit the same things. They're like, I know you spent a hundred bucks on this, but it feels to me like you got lazy, you got sad, like you lost your imagination and this was probably last minute gas station and you probably overpaid yeah. for this. Um, so they used our product to interact with those two groups, these customers that they needed to know more about. How did they even the know that, this, that... that these two customers exist? Did they just see that in their customer service email? I can't imagine people writing in and saying, thanks for letting me send these red roses, even though it's lazy. Is that what was happening? Yeah, no. So Bloom and Wild and you know many B2C businesses understand a lot about their existing customers. A test is all about the customers that you don't have yet, the ones okay. that aren't in your CRM, the ones that you can't reach naturally. And those are the groups that Bloom and Wild really wanted to go after here. Um, and so what they did was they asked a bunch of Red Rose givers and a bunch of Red Rose receivers, is Red Roses a good idea? Is this a good mm. choice? And universally bad idea, lazy, sad, overpriced, last ah. minute, unimaginative, boring. Um, so because Bloom and Wild stands for making the best out of every occasion using flowers, they took the choice to delist this number one selling skew because they believed it was the right thing to do and that all of the Red Roses givers and receivers would thank them for doing this. Okay. That yielded a four times year on year revenue increase. Amazing. Wait, so take me through specifically what you do. Do you send out surveys? How do you work? Yeah, so our product works as follows. You create questions, surveys, you can show things to people, ask things of people, video, audio, text, you then choose which audience sees it. We cover 110 million consumers and growing across 50 countries and growing. You can choose women who are 38 to 54 in Brazil, half Rio, half Sao Paulo, and ask them about English gin companies. You uh, because can choose... you've, got these, you've got the panel there for us. Exactly. Uh, and we've put together the whole end-to-end -end process of, I've got something I want to know. I don't know the people or how to reach them, but I do know exactly who I'm trying to find out. All I need right. is a way to put things in front of them, ask them questions, choose who they are, receive that data. And then crucially, when I find something interesting, follow up, repeat, expand like a scientist in a lab. Got it. So Jeremy, if I understand you right, if I had this hunch that maybe what I should be doing is bringing Mixergy to Brazil, there are a lot of entrepreneurs in Brazil, maybe people tell me, maybe people from Brazil come to my office and say, why aren't you there? Why aren't you in Portuguese? My gut might tell me, stay away, or maybe my gut says, hey, I'm hearing enough people do it, I should jump in. What a test would tell me to do is say, why don't you find the ideal type of entrepreneur and then start asking them questions? And I might ask them questions like, do you listen to podcasts? Do you have a podcast app on your phone? And if they don't, then trying to be a podcast creator in that space might be too early. That's the way you exactly. work. Exactly. Yeah. And um, you can get started doing this in about 90 seconds in our product. You usually get results the same day or in a day or two, which means that, you know, on Friday this week, we might wonder, okay, they're not going to like my podcast, but I've discovered something about what they would like. I'm going to get into a lot of detail about this Brazilian market for podcasts and exactly which white spaces exist. And it looks like there's a whole stream of things over here. And I'm going to tell my friend around the corner that that's a good idea. And also a bunch of sponsors that might want to get into that. And we can iteratively discover all these things about the customers that we wish we knew about, but we can't reach because that's how you unlock growth. That's how you unlock value. How much revenue are you producing with this? Uh, we are well over 10 million ARR now, which is nice. Wow. Would rather that was, you know, 10, 10 billion <laughs> would be good. Um, working on that as we speak. Uh, and uh, working on what? What's the goal? So you're you're 10 million annual rev uh, annual recurring revenue. That means people sign up for subscriptions. 
Yeah, we 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 operate on an annual basis. So you, we find that customers who really commit to using a test for you know a, a bunch of different things and this journey of knowing more about your target customer so you can grow revenue faster, that tends to be something that's a far more in demand than most people realize and B, once you start quite addictive. So we sell one year or longer contracts and most clients end up using this product far more than they expect because this is something that deep down we all want to do more of. I saw that on your site, $2,000 a month is where it starts at uh, the professional level though you do have a free plan. Um, And then what's your goal? You're starting to talk about what the revenue ideal would be. Where are you trying to go? Yeah, so I mean, we aim to grow well over 100% year on year, which brings us into very large numbers in the near future. I'm a big uh, Jason Lenkin and Sasta fan, and we we try to constantly be in the top decile of all SaaS metrics of CAC payback, net retention rate, gross margin, all of the SaaS things. But deep down, what we do for our clients is something very simple, bring you closer to your target customers so that you can do right by them more often and be right more often in every decision that you make. So when you were working at McKinsey, I thought McKinsey was all about data. They produce big reports. They give you the data to justify what you wanted to do anyway is is the thing that people say about them. You want to lay you want to lay off tens of thousands of people? Well, if you do it, you're a jerk. But if you bring in McKinsey, they're going to have all kinds of data and they will give you the cover in order to do it. That's one of the things that McKinsey's known for. Uh but I would data, contest that, but uh, you know that's not. That that, does happen. I thought that's I thought that's one of the. It does happen, right? I'm not saying that that's a that that's a product offering. I'm just saying that that's the that something companies have done in the past, right? Um, well, I think McKinsey is usually brought in to solve problems that companies can't solve themselves, and that can range yep. from how do we put these two things together and make it more than the sum of its parts? Our business is failing. What do we do about it? All the way through to whoops, the entire world move against us and now we need to be half the size we were yesterday. How the hell do we do that? Um, McKinsey tends to get involved in those types of situations. And to bring it to life a bit, um, I spent nine years working at McKinsey and you move to a new client in a new country once every six to 12 weeks on average when I was there. So you're constantly being in these new situations in these very urgent, very big topics. And give me, give me an to... example of a, of a project that you worked on that you're especially proud of that would help us understand what McKinsey does best. Oh, I need a minute to think here. It's all very, it's all very hush hush and confidential. So I need to be. Oh, really? Well, you don't have to give me the name of the company, but I'd love to get a sense of it. Did you turn your camera off, by the way? I did. Why? Just Let's bring back it back up. Things. I want to be able to see okay. you. I, I kind of assumed that it was my software that uh, turned it off because of your bandwidth. Why'd you turn it off? Did you feel uncomfortable being looked at like this? No bandwidth. Ah, okay, good. Uh, well, I'm, I'm actually, I switched to, ah, uh, sorry about that. But I, I switched to Riverside. One of the beauties of using the software is they record your stuff on your computer, my stuff on my computer, and then a backup of everything on their computers. It's just been an amazing piece of software to use. Uh, and it also showed me that that uh, you turned off your camera. And I love that they tell me that. All right. So I'm glad that you brought it back up. Give me. Do you have an example of something that you worked on? Even if you, if you were to talk without giving the company name or in more generalities, it would give me a sense of what's exciting and what, what's smart about them. Oh, some of my favorites. Um, I once worked on what would have been uh, Europe's second ever, second largest ever private equity deal um, that never happened. It was a thing that made a lot of sense. And as we pieced together the various components and we evaluated what did or did not make sense and exactly what it took to create this transaction and generate all the value that it was designed to create, 
we felt the financing of this deal moving further and further away with every passing day and mm. week. Uh, the terms of the financing we could get in order to create this situation moved against us. And this ended up being the first few days and weeks of the global financial crisis as credit oh. markets moved against us and spreads widened. So the logic and the economics of this deal deteriorated down to should never happen, which was just a super interesting pace to be in. Um, at the end of the scale, I was working once uh, in a, you know, outside Europe um, in a very, very large technology business that was trying to figure out how to create a new business out of an internal tool that they built. So they built this very, very interesting internal tool. A lot of us use this tool now. None of us know where it came from. Um, but this, this business said, we built this tool that we use internally, but we want to release it to the world and we want to turn it into a revenue-generating business because it's such an interesting product. But if people knew where it come from, they'd never trust it and they'd never use it. So we need to be completely arm's length from this thing. We are distinct from it and we'll prove it to you. Um, but we need to be completely arm's length from this thing. How the hell do we build a business that is entirely from us and for us, that is useful to the entire world, but they'll never know where it came from? That's an interesting challenge. Um, all the way through to, um, to your point around cost as well. I once worked on... Uh, for a very large global company, they needed to, in a short period of time, um, close, let's say, half their buildings and remove about 30% of their cost base as quickly as possible. Various buildings in various countries have different leases and different occupancy rates where you can open them and close them. Various uh, cost measures and regulations in different countries mean that you can move fast or slow or decisively or in groups in different jurisdictions for different cost controls. How you do that in which order and the kind of giant postman's walk of logic that takes you to do a series of things in a specific set of actions, that's a very difficult puzzle to solve. So these were the types of things that are impossible to solve, but if you come at it with a certain approach, suddenly become navigable. Wow, that's the type of thing that I wanted to learn about in college. And from what I understand, college just prepares you to start working on those problems and I could see why somebody who's been to McKinsey ends up being, ends up having a better understanding of how to run businesses. There's this great book called The Firm, the story of how McKinsey was created. Do you know it by Duff McDonald? Yeah, I've, I've read a few of those books. Um, the Firm, there's also, you know, various books that are in favor and against McKinsey. I've read a few of different opinions. Yeah. And it's just interesting to see how McKinsey manifests itself to different personas and people and situations over time. What I like about people who, I've, who I know who've worked there is they're just solid thinkers. The thing that blew me away was you said, yeah, they are, but also there are times when they use gut when they shouldn't have to. And you gave us an example about uh, McKinsey. Well, do you know the one that I'm talking about going into or helping a client get into India? Yeah. I mean, there's, as I mentioned, every every six to 12 weeks, you're in a new location trying to solve a new problem with a new set of people. And often you find that there is a lot of data that you can use, but there's often big holes in that data. And if you can't get that data within a sort of two week time frame, it's kind of useless to get it any later than that. So a big part of a test is filling gaps in understanding of customers, because that turns out to be something very useful everywhere. But a big moment for me in my career um, and part of the genesis of a test was I was once working in Chicago on, and a part of what I was doing was trying to launch a, a consumer product that was aimed at South Indian housewives. 
and I was filled, um, I was in a room filled with um, 12 Caucasian men, and they were the ones who were tasked with figuring out what these South Indian women wanted and what they needed and how to launch a product and what success would look like. And I asked these 12 Caucasian gentlemen how many of them had ever left uh, the United States. Um, none of them had ever visited India. None of them, uh, only two of them had ever left the United States. One had been to Canada and Mexico, and one had just been to Mexico. And I asked them how they thought they knew what South Indian housewives wanted in this product that they were trying to launch. And the answer I got back was, we're the experts. And that just, I mean, I'm originally a scientist, and that just made me so unhappy. That is borderline illegal and, you know, defies the face of logic. It laughs in the face of consumer centricity and data-driven decision-making. And I thought that was just so ridiculous that there must be a way to understand these target customers and at least get them into our thought process and have a way to interact with them that isn't guess or hope, um, because those were the two, two, two tools that these 12 gentlemen seemed to be using at the time. Well, weren't there tools like a test already online by then? We're talking about you left McKinsey in 2014. There have yeah. been panels that you could go and get offline. There have been online companies that have done it. I've interviewed some of them. Why couldn't you just say, let's use those those companies? I mean, you can. It is, uh, I mean, let's use the example of Alibaba. Um, mm -hmm. Alibaba makes it easy to you know, buy things from manufacturers in foreign countries. It is incredibly easy for you and I to go out and get 12 quotes for 12 slushy machines from 12 different manufacturers somewhere else in the world outside the US or UK. The problem is we have to send 12 emails. We have to then read 12 replies. We have to stack up 12 different quotes, convert them into US dollars and British pounds, figure out the supply chain routes, the taxation, the delivery, the legal mm -hmm. contracts. We need to get that to our legal team, maybe choose a top two. And then comparing them, we'll negotiate the price against them. And suddenly something that seems very easy is actually very, very hard to even start, let alone complete. And we're a long way from getting the slushy machines that we wanted. And that's how market research can feel when you're dealing with traditional agencies or panel companies in that it is easy to phone them up and say, here's the thing I want to do. It is hard to actually start doing that thing. It is hard to do it in a way that's in any way flexible. And that's why I often use Alibaba and the simplification of a very, very complex process for the benefit of a lot of businesses. That's kind of what we're doing at a test to market research. I see. You're saying it was possible. It was just very complicated and needlessly cumbersome. And you thought, I think, I think there's an opportunity to fix it. You decided you were going to talk to customers. And so how did you get your first customers? What did you ask them? Yeah, we kind of did this bit backwards and it was a bit weird. We we set out, this is May 2015. Um, I deliberately set out to try to get funding very early on in our company's life cycle and also try to get customers very early on. Those were the two things that I felt were, for this business, the right determining step to our growth and scaling and success. So the way I did it on customers was um, I wanted to get 15 different customers just to learn their problems and to start to you know talk about pro problems and prototypes with them. So I went out to get five people that I knew quite well who worked in target businesses, people who were CMOs or equivalent of B2C companies, different sizes, 
different places. I then went to another five who were people who I didn't know, but I could get an intro to. So people who wouldn't necessarily know me or be nice to me, but had a reason to speak with me and were kind of doing me a favor via someone else. I went to a third group, which was five companies who I'd never met them before and had absolutely no reason to help me. And in there, I thought I had an interesting mix of 15 companies, different sizes, different stages, different roles, different levels of you know belief and credibility in, in me and what we were doing and different levels of care in the outcome. And I thought if I could get from these three different groups some very honest feedback, but also their buy-in about what we were doing and that it would be useful to them, that would be, A, very, very useful for us in building product and prototypes and figuring out the best manifestation of solving the problem, but also a very, very good way to get to first revenue and first equity fundraising faster than usual. And so one of the questions you asked them was, what data do you wish you had that would have moved the needle for you? And by move the needle, you mean have impact where? Measurable impact on, on revenue, on profits? We asked them to define that. So, you know, I, I went in with hypotheses about what was the data that they wish they had that they didn't have today. And okay. most of my hypotheses were wrong. So I remember walking into the doors of one really big UK retail company. Um, they sell all sorts of things. And I posed this question, you you must have data that you wish you knew. And they said, wow, we, we spend millions of pounds and dollars each year on research. We buy every report. We work with every research agency. We have all of our receipt data. We have data processing and data science partnerships. What can you possibly do that we don't have already? And I said, what what do you wish you know, knew that you don't yeah. know today. And they started listing things, hundreds of things. They listed, first of all, categories of things that they were, where they were flying blind. Then they started to get into the details about very specific opportunities and why they wanted these things. And it turns out there's just this huge pent up volume of demand for knowledge about target customers where there was no pre-existing solution. And for some of it, to your question, some of it was about growing revenue. Some of it was about understanding competition. Some of it was about understanding ranging and shelf space. Some of it was about understanding M&A opportunities. This void of information was present across this entire company. Every role, every persona constantly either being forced to guess what their target customers want or making bad decisions based on the data that they already had, which was in some way incomplete or old. And that made me think there is an opportunity here that is far larger than I ever imagined. Everybody wants to do more of this. They're just lacking a way to start or a venue that makes it easy. And that was the original genesis of the test. And when you were asking them, where, how would you want this information? Did they tell you surveys? What did they tell you that led you to create the product? This was the weird thing. So no one talks about surveys. No one talks about questions. No yeah. one talks about data. No one talks about analysis. All of those things are you know, in the in the giant beef Wellington, this is the puff pastry, the mushroom duck cell. This is all of the ingredients and the bits I don't care about. All I care about is a delicious dinner covered in gravy and it's amazing and I had a good time. People don't care about questions or surveys or data or, you know, statistical significance on the whole. Very disappointingly for me as a statistician and a scientist. What they care about is I've got intuition. I've got these ideas like are red roses a good idea or a bad idea? 
and I want to add some information to this intuition. I've got gut feel. What I'm missing is information and direction. I've got doubt. I don't know how far to take it. I've got 38 solutions to this problem. Which one is right? I don't know which one is right. I'm forced to guess or choose. And if you're Steve Jobs, you can probably choose well. And if you're not, your gut is going to be right. I mean, according to Clay Christensen, only 5% of the time because 95% of product launches fail. So what we found out was everyone wants to inform their intuition to the point where they can make a better choice and dissolve the doubt to the point where they can make a bold move. And this problem of understanding target customers better in order to be right more often existed in far more places than I realized. All right. Where did you get your first panels? So we we started experimenting by building our own versions. So we we wanted to have a way of testing our own product. And we also want to understand both the audience market as well as the client market. So think about researchers' demand and supply, supply of responses and data and ideas and feedback from customers and demand from businesses that wish they knew more about that. So in the very early days, we built a testing platform where we, we built our own little miniature panel to do two things. One is to test our product in the real world. And then two is to understand exactly how panels work because deep, dark secret, most online research panels are quite old, very hard to run, extremely low quality, and it's better than nothing, but it's nowhere near as good as it should be. And the way a panel would work is, if I understand you, if I understand the market and I'm getting to understand it through these interviews, it seems like a publisher like me would have an email list of entrepreneurs. I might want to get paid by you to have to send a message to my audience saying if you're interested in giving some feedback on these on these business on these products that are built for entrepreneurs like you, go over here, they fill out a form to apply. They not only give feedback, but they also get paid for their feedback, right? And that's how I would add to your panel. Or maybe I have my own panel and you come and rent it for me. Exactly. Um, you can buy, you can rent, you can interact. Sometimes mm-hmm. there's uh, incentives and rewards to participants in who give answers in research. Sometimes that's cash, sometimes it's points, sometimes it's feelings, sometimes it's uh-huh. knowledge, sometimes it's involvement. There's a uh-huh. whole spectrum of different people to participate and there's a whole other spectrum about reasons why they participate and how they participate. I think the key for us is to work across all of those reasons, as many different incentives as possible, as many different channels as possible, as many different models as possible. And so, Jeremy, when you were starting out, you said, I'm going to go and find all these panels, or did you say you're going to go put the panels together yourself? um, At the very early days, we created our own panel, and we put it together, and we had... uh, Sorry? How? How'd you put together a panel for, for, I'm imagining, a diverse uh, set of customers? Yeah, it wasn't very diverse because we were using one one methodology, which was um, a web app or native app on iPhone only to reach people who'd signed up to do market research in exchange for cash. Uh, and that was the very, very simplest starting point. And it was for us more of an MVP. So we, we built little test programs where we would acquire um, market to and acquire users using the usual marketing channels and get them to um, sign up to do surveys and respond in exchange for some sort of incentive. And we started very, very simple. This is good because it helped us understand exactly how these different audiences and panels and channels work and how they interact with respondents. 
it's bad because it's one set of respondents who signed up to do one thing for one reason, which is great if those are the consumers that you want. But if you want anything else, it's actually a really terrible way to do that. Um, so we set out this way because it was a great way to get data and understand the problems we were trying to solve. But we had a much bigger ambition in mind. And so couldn't you have rented those panels? Couldn't you have found brokers and then just been the layer on top of them, the digital layer? Well, we ended up going down that path in that it is it, our approach now is to integrate with and sit on top as many different ways of reaching respondents as we possibly can, you know, hundreds now, and to have consistent access to all of that, but only interact with it and use it when there's actually a, a point of demand from a client that needs to work across the, all these different forms of supply. And the key is to have such a vast array and diversity and reach of different audiences and ways of reaching people around the world, that whatever our client happens to want to do today, whatever matters to them today, whatever they're wondering today, is somehow possible within all of this. Um, which where we started, which, you know, with those prototypes was definitely not possible for almost anything a client wants to do. Now we try to take the exact opposite approach, which is to hugely oversolve supply so that whatever demand comes along, we have a really nice way of giving the client an end-to-end -end journey from their idea to their action. And uh -huh. adding the inputs from respondents is one of many different components that actually let them do that. So you're saying in the beginning, you tried to get the panelists yourself. The panelists are the human beings who answer questions for companies who are trying to get data instead of gut instinct. And as you put those panels together yourself, you didn't have enough diversity for your clients, but at least you were showing that the clients had enough interest to sign up. Am I, am I understanding right? Yeah. And we weren't selling this. So we were just using it for testing in that um, that product, which is, you know, responses that come from one survey app for one reason is you know very nice and very simple but doesn't satisfy people in big companies who have very complex needs it doesn't understand it doesn't satisfy unless you cover you know millions of consumers in dozens of markets you're saying no to most things that your potential clients want to do because Got that's it. constantly changing so but for you was it was mvp, type MVP to prove that that there were enough businesses who are willing to pay for this you just didn't have what they were looking for and that there were enough respondents who are willing to get paid to give feedback. Uh, by the way, as you sat up, I saw that you're wearing a Saster t-shirt, speaking of yeah. uh, Jason Lemkin and his his philosophy. What is it that you like about his philosophy? Um, two things, I think. One, he shares so much and he he's sort of unafraid to have an opinion, but he is also unafraid to say when he's right or wrong. So he's constantly saying, these are definitions of top decile SaaS metrics. Here are 10 things you can do to interview your first leader for this new function that you're building. Um, he's also very humble about things that he got wrong and that you know he's more of a kind of grand wizard of SaaS rather than a disproportionately successful unicorn founder. I think his business is an amazing one, but he's the first to say there are many SaaS businesses that are much bigger, and he sees his role now as to sort of help others achieve that type of success. Um, I think the second thing is how they operate as a company. So even I went to Saster in San Francisco two weeks ago. They uh, they held this all outdoor event, 100% vaccinated, every single person tested on the way in, it was incredibly expensive to do it all outdoors, it felt like, you know, wedding marquees, but dozens of them. And the the atmosphere, the vibe and how they curate the event is amazing. For example, 
they they don't let people get on stage and talk about why Zoom is amazing because clearly Zoom's had a very good period recently. They do get people to go up on stage and say, hey, I'm the CEO of Zoom. Here are the five biggest mistakes I've ever made and what we learned from them. And two of them I'm still unsure about would love your help. Like there's a sense of vulnerability, community and mutual learning that Sasta and Jason Lem can create, which I think is really inspiring. I liked how in the early days he was he was comfortable saying what he knew, which was sales. He was comfortable preaching sales, including SDRs and salespeople at a time when everyone wanted everything to be online and having human beings as salespeople almost felt like a failure of your software. And it's a temporary solution until you can get to that. All right. Um, let me take a moment to talk about my sponsor. It's HostGator. And I've got to tell you, Jeremy, HostGator, I just asked them, give me stats. How am I doing here? And what we discovered as we went through the stats was that when I asked my guest for a business idea related to their business that could be hosted on HostGator, people sign up. Even if it's not to run that idea, they get creative. They start to think about what they could do on their own, and they go to sign up for HostGator. So let me ask you this, Jeremy. I'm going to run an idea by you. Do you think that there's a model where someone can say, go to HostGator, get a basic website hosted, start creating content, and as a way of monetizing it, say to their audience, if you want more insight into new products, if you want to give your needs to new creators, sign up and be a part of our surveys. You'll get paid for giving survey responses and you'll be contributing to creating better software, better businesses for, let's say, if we target entrepreneurs. Do you think that there's a market for that or is there not enough revenue in doing that? I think there's a big market for that. I think you'd get many different people participate some for you know financial rewards others would be for the greater good to help other you know founders yep. or innovators like you other people still would love to see some of the results um in that when you when you start to see how other people respond to research it starts to get very interesting to you so there's a whole spectrum of reasons why ah. people participate in market research and what you just mentioned with HostGator would be quite a good way to discover exactly what would motivate this community to participate and share ideas with others because in, it inevitably will be a whole bunch of different reasons for a whole bunch of very different people. So you're saying someone who takes a survey not only can get paid for it, they could also get an understanding of how everyone else filled out that survey and the feedback that they got or is that not right? Yeah. I mean, a very large uh, proportion of market research respondents are not paid at all. Uh, I think it's a big misnomer to believe that every single research respondent is paid in cash. That's a really good way to get younger people and less affluent people. Wealthy people, older people, people who have less time, people who are in less mobile or internet penetrated countries far less interested in cash incentives. They're more interested in helping people who are like you, who have similar problems. They're interested in seeing what happens. Some are interested in feeling powerful. Some are interested in a whole bunch of other things. So you're right in that, you know, financial incentives or rewards of some type are some are a wedge of why some people participate in market research, but there's many other wedges and many other reasons that add up to the totality of the total inputs available. Okay. And so if someone were to go to HostGator, create a website, create content, and then start bringing in people to, to sign up and be on panels, what are they, what's a good topic for them to focus on? What are you in need of that's, that's accessible? And, and then we'll talk about where they would go to sell, their, uh, sell access to their panels. Yeah. A topic that we're in need of? Yeah. yeah or uh, if not you, then, then businesses like you. So I think- um, two things for us. So one, 
we have so many different buyers in so many different sectors. We never really know what's what's hottest or why we're most attractive. We track our marketing campaigns. We know what works there. But beyond this, that original question I asked, what is the data that you wish you knew about your target customers? And how would your life be different if you could know that today? I would love to know that from more people in more places, particularly who are people starting businesses or people who are launching new products. What's the thing that would help you most? Because that is deep down why our product exists. Wait, and so the you're saying that if, if someone were listening to us right now and saying, I need to get panelists so that I can get paid for, for doing it, this would be a, a starter business. They should look for business owners and and that's what they that's what you would pay for? How much would they get paid for it? How does this business work for somebody who's putting together a panel? Uh, I, I, we, don't, we don't run any panels. No, I'm saying if someone were to go build a web, would this be a good topic? Could they say, you know what? I'm in the startup space. I imagine that there are businesses that want to understand what startups or startup entrepreneurs are thinking. They create some startup content. They then get some of the people who are on there to join panels Right, so now they have a list of people who are willing to give feedback to other businesses uh, in order to make the world a better place. Now, this publisher who goes to HostGator and creates this website, who do they sell access to this list to? Where do they go to to make money from it? Now that they've got a handful of people, not a handful, let's say thousands of people who are willing to fill out forms. Um, there's a few different parts here. So one is, um, uh, and it's all of them are quite difficult to execute. So one is you can create a whole business around this. So many people and many, you know, many panels or audiences start this way. Um, and this is something I'm not an expert in. Um, so um, many, many businesses would create such an audience and then figure out ways to monetize it. So then you'd start to approach people who might be interested in interacting with that audience and um, saying, I've got this audience, what do you want to ask them? Um, which tends to be kind of on a sort of bespoke or project basis, which is, you know, one of many forms of how market research and industry started. Another way is there's a whole bunch of intermediaries. So be they big agencies that have a lot of different clients and you can say, hey, when you want to do this activity, I'm over here and come and ask. Um, and I would call that resting liquidity. So saying, I have this supply, whenever you have demand, come over here and ask me and I'll give you a quote all the way through to there's automated ways to do that. So there's a bunch of different exchanges and aggregators where you can say that you have this audience available and you can figure out when he wants to buy it. Um, uh, and by buy it, I really mean rent it. So yeah. I have this way of interacting with this group of people. Do you want to put your questions or your activities in this channel where I can contact these people? And in exchange, I would like to monetize that, please. So, What's a good marketplace uh, much, to find out what that audience is worth? What's a good marketplace? Much like, um, but the, by far the largest volume is in the first two right now, uh, in that traditionally market research was done the first way. I, I am an intermediary. Um, and then the, the sort of second and third way, I am a big agency that has a whole bunch of these things put together. And part of my role is to connect them all the way through to doing that in a more automated way, which is a bit more modern. What's a marketplace that's more automated that we could list our, our access to? Oh, there's a number of them. So, um, there is Sint in Scandinavia, there is Lucid in the US, there is Spe Pure Spectrum, there is Dynata, um, there, which came from two different companies called Research Now and SSI. Um, there's a whole number of these different companies that do that activity. Okay. Um, 
Whether it's that idea or anything else, if you need a website hosted, go to hostgator.com slash Mixergy. They'll give you a great price and the, the service just freaking works, allows you to focus on your business. By the way, I interviewed the founder of Lucid. They're phenomenal business. Do you use their panels? What they do is they basically find panels all over and then they connect them with companies like uh, SurveyMonkey and others that then give access to, uh, to those panels. Uh, yeah, we work with Lucid. Um, I had breakfast with Patrick yesterday. <laughs> uh, he, uh, amazing business. I love what they do. Um, and they they also have some particularly interesting angles about how they pair uh, background data with response data and their particular role in being an intermediary between these different audiences that have ways of reaching consumers and the the people that want to interact with them. Speaking of meetings, I heard that before you go into a meeting, you stop and you think about something for 15 seconds to help focus you. What is it that you do before you go into meetings? Yeah, I learned this technique. I don't do it before every meeting, but I learned this technique from um, a guy I used to work with in Australia a long time ago called Michael Rennie. Um, And I saw him do this once in an elevator where he just closed his eyes and it looked like he was some sort of Mr. Miyagi slash Yoda moment while as we ascended uh-huh. in this big building towards this impossible problem and what the hell do we know? He just took 15 seconds to close his eyes. I asked him afterwards, like, what were you doing then? And he said, I just wanted to figure out how I wanted to feel at the end of the meeting. I wasn't thinking about the you know the problem i wasn't thinking about a smart thing to say or a question or a neat solution or you know some occam's razor to cut through this uh this set of ideas or this data we were looking at what i wanted what i was thinking about was how do i want to feel and how do i want everyone else to feel when this meeting ends and then you start to think about how do i achieve that how do i open how do i close how do i conduct this process and he introduced me to this idea of sort of simultaneously participating whilst also guiding what's happening Uh, and he kind of created his own destiny that everyone would feel about this very energized and excited about the outcome and that this was possible when maybe walking through and they felt it was impossible and I asked him a number of other times for different meetings what was your approach for this one and he kind of taught me this method of thinking how do you want people to feel at the end and then if you can keep that thought in your mind throughout a half hour one hour meeting and you get to the end and you achieve that often what happened along the way was very positive and the outcome you wanted to achieve is magically what happened which is a convenient method sometimes. You know what? I went to work for Dale Carnegie and Associates when I was in college, and I remember they paired me with this guy, Robert Reese, who was a killer salesman for them, and a guy who was also doing training, and I had this similar experience. We were walking over to AT&T, which was just a few blocks away from our office, and before getting in there, he ducked into an office building where I guess he just needed a little bit of air conditioning after the hot walk, And I could see he just calmed himself down. He changed his personality. He didn't, I don't think he closed his eyes, but he refocused himself on what he wanted out of the meeting and the way he wanted to carry himself in the meeting. And we went from feeling frustrated at the heat and and thinking about like all the things we wanted to get done to just energetically having him fill the space. And I could see as soon as we got into AT&T's office, he greeted the receptionist in a different way. He talked to the person in a different way. It was just, uh, it was a magical thing to experience. And if it wasn't business related, I would have thought it would just be too woo-woo to pay attention to, you know? But boy, does that work. And you could think that this is some sort of, you know, 
uh, Jedi mind trick at the same time. It's just a very nice and simple method if you can remember systematically to do this to, yeah. exactly as you said, think towards the end, work back to today, and then your actions kind of write themselves and you're thinking about the context, your approach, and your efficacy in a very different way than you were when you perhaps walked into the elevator with a big laptop full of data and slides to talk about and some confusion about how we're going to get there. Suddenly everything comes very clear. And I could see also why you wouldn't want to do it before every meeting. It would become a chore if it's something that you do all the time and lose its magic. But when you need it to pull it out like magic, it's just super powerful. Uh, yeah. So forever grateful to Michael Rennie for helping me with that. Thanks, Michael. Yeah. All right. So you did your MVP. Things made sense. What's next? Raising money was the next step or was it to actually start to put together a real product? Um, both of those. So we... in at least in UK VC world at the time, so this is 2015, having some revenue was actually helpful. Um, many say that having zero revenue is actually more helpful than having some revenue today. Bit of a cliche that now. So we set out to build uh, both a, a kind of working prototype, trying to get this very simple form of supply and trying to unlock the demand problems because fundamentally that's you know where our business is useful is in finding ways to unlock new knowledge and, and information for these businesses that desperately need it to our discovery around those 15 different customers that I mentioned. Um, so set out to build a product taking real shortcuts on parts of the prototype, particularly on the audiences that I mentioned, and then at the same time trying to raise venture capital funding. Uh, and having a whole bunch of clients who were saying, if they can build this product, I would love to buy it. Please, can you invest in it so that it can uh. exist? That was a very convenient way to, to generate seed funding very early on, which probably helped us take a few giant leap forwards in terms of scale and productivity um, in month five, which was quite fun. Who did a test raise money from? I didn't see it. Uh, so first investor was episode one, who were a really brilliant seed fund based in London, who've backed all sorts of fascinating companies, but specialist at seed stage, specialist first check. Okay. How much did you raise? I think it was £650,000. Okay. And what did it allow you to create now that you actually had money? What did the first version beyond the seed, beyond the MVP look like? Yeah, so we immediately binned the MVP. <laughs> yeah. So the MVP was, I remember it, it was all black with a black background and it had you know these little characters that would help you understand how to do the research. And it was had many of the ideas that a test today has, being very transparent about what is or is not possible and giving a lot of guidance and almost preventing you from making mistakes without you realizing. It had a lot of that in it. But it looked very amateur hour and it only linked up to this one way of interacting with respondents, which we always knew was never going to be the complete answer. So we immediately took that prototype, which I'm embarrassed to say was in Drupal, um, which again is wow. a, a language that we have never used since then. <laughs> um, so we had this very simple thing and it, it worked. It could actually do stuff for people. Wait, who what could it do? It, could, it allowed businesses to find panels or panelists to sign up and uh, give feedback? Both. Um, you could actually use it and you could ask, I think we had several thousand UK consumers that we profiled to a, a very fine degree. You could ask those several thousand people basically okay. anything you wanted uh, in any and, format. And you bought ads online, I'm assuming, to get these consumers to come in and say that they're willing to give feedback? Yeah, we basically, uh, we ran it like a any 
B2C proposition. So we we had a, a acquisition cost, we had a payback, we knew kind of asset utilization rates, we knew engagement rates, we had maximum engagement rates, we also had minimum engagement rates, maximums to stop any one person doing far more research than maybe the world wanted to hear from them, a minimum to make sure that we, you know, had at least enough engagement to keep this person interested in participating over time. These are sort of two core What do you mean if I could understand how you might want to scale a client back so that they're not hitting people over and over with too many questions, basically spamming or feels like spam. If you don't have enough questions for a panelist, did you start making some up so that you can keep that person engaged? Uh, We never did that. We we looked more to the reasons why. So what what is it about our business that hasn't created demand for this person's supply? Or what is it about mm. this person's supply that is less in demand than the world needs? And this was a really big, important part for our early learning about knowing what's useful and what's not. So a bunch of our clients wanted to do kind of nationally representative research. I want to understand Broadly across the UK, I kind of want to reach into everything. Broadly across the US or specific areas of the US, I want to know a broad audience and I want to be able to dive into it and analyze it and look at just New York or just DC or just Baltimore or just women in Baltimore. I want to be able to do that. But I first I want to see how these different populations look in aggregate, but also in different details. And as we worked out to create something like that, you have to have something of everything. But also, we worked out very quickly, there are certain pockets of supply and interest and respondents and audiences and customers that are far more in demand than others. So we tried to figure out ways to constantly make that available, whilst also making these very large and broad research available. And that ended up being a big part of how we balance supply and demand over time. Then two years in, you nearly ran out of money, apparently, right? What happened? Uh, so we just started selling annual subscriptions um, in the classic SaaS model. We'd we'd take gone beyond our first prototypes, which were very simple prototypes. And then we threw that one away. We built a second prototype. People started then paying for that prototype, but only for specific things they wanted to do. And we only really charged them when it worked the way they wanted it to. That was a really good way to sort of build more demand and also generate more data. We then, we called it the subscription flip, uh, November the 1st, 2017. We started saying, this product is good enough that you should buy it for a year. And we also feel very strongly that you need to commit to using it for a year because this needs to be something that you do far more often, but you haven't figured that out yet. So we're going to we're gonna put a very large burden of proof for our product, but also for your commitment to it and call it you have to buy it for a year and you have to pay up front. And that was a really big moment for us to to figure out how we could do that and exactly what it would take. The problem that created was we had a bunch of customers sign up, but it left us in a short-term working capital problem where we had a bunch of customers signing up. We had a huge amount of technical investment to make this happen. We went on a big spending spree to acquire new um, B2C companies who wanted to use this product. And we had a bunch of money coming in in February, March, April 2018. But in November, December 2017, we had far less cash than we anticipated. So we had a bunch of stuff coming in, but it looked like we were going to have this liquidity shortfall at exactly the wrong moment, which was December 2017 payroll, which oh, wow. holiday period, Christmas in the UK, 
pretty much an apocalypse. We knew we had it covered, but at the yeah. same time, we also, there was a 15% chance in growing that we couldn't make payroll in December standalone. So how'd you finally make payroll? <laughs> well, it was a choice to make. We knew that we... We knew that we had the cash coming in. We knew we had eight months runway. We just had this short-term liquidity situation. We also knew that there was only probably a 15% chance it was actually coming to existence. But I took the approach to tell everyone this. I said, look, I wanted to let everyone know this. I think at the time it was about 25, 30 people in the company, many of whom are still with us today. Um, wanted to let you know that there's this thing that might happen. And right now it's 15% chance and... Obviously, this would be an absolutely terrible thing. Didn't want to hide it, wanted to tell you. Um, don't want to let it get above 15. I'm going to make it a big priority over the next few weeks to figure out how to get that down to zero. You should know that we have financial security into the long term, just not at that exact moment. And that would be a very inconvenient moment. Um, and you should know I'm really aware of this. So um, we took a very transparent approach with our team and also with our investors, even with our customers. We said, look, we've got this problem. And what ended up happening was one of our investors, episode one that I mentioned, um, just said, look, you've always been very transparent with us. We can see that you have the long-term stability. We can see that this subscription model is actually really flying off the shelves now. Um, so here's a uh, unilaterally signed convertible loan note with zero interest and no expiry for £75,000. And if you need this, you just sign that and send it back and I'll wire the money the same day. Wow. Um, and I think because of the level of belief in our sort of long term, but also their understanding through our transparency of the situation that we got ourselves into, they were quite happy just to say, you know what, you have better things to do than worry about this. We'll just underwrite that problem and, and you know, you carry on with building the business. And what happened from there was we ended up being one of the fastest companies in European history to go from zero to one million ARR. And that generated, obviously, the next funding round, which was led by NEA, big Silicon Valley fund. Wow, and, huge. Um, probably that was a good decision from us, the company, and a good decision for that investor, episode one, to just take that problem away and let us focus on execution. And that ended up being um, something that we look back on as a, a, a sort of a big set of decisions of being transparent. But that approach really helped us. And that's the way we've always been. And it really rewarded us at that moment. And the growth came because you were willing to stay as a subscription service. Can you give me one one thing that worked for you uh, for turning your product from a one-off to a subscription and we'll close it there one thing that did work yeah i mean how were you able to take it you said that you had to make changes to your product in order to make it uh, a subscription now i understand changing the mindset internally changing your customer's mindset but what did you change about the product to help earn the right to charge people monthly it was more that we grew into the point where it we could actually justify um charging annually and upfront. So I think when we when we launched our first MVPs and products a year, 18 months before that point, um, we, we could charge for it, but we could never take our long-term angle, which was to say, you need to really commit to doing this. And if you do, you will see, you will reap the rewards um, like Bloom and Wild did. But there were some gaps in the product that meant we didn't feel it was quite ready uh, to to justify the subscription model, nor the annual commitment with upfront payment. 
we planned that for January the 1st, 2018, and we ended up going two months early because we felt the product was ready enough. And we felt that in a, a number of clients we already had, if we said, you really need to commit to this and we'll really commit to you, that that would be a positive rather than a negative. So it felt like a big risk at the time. But when we look back, we probably could have gone two months before that if only we'd had uh, enough data and enough volume to, to realize that. And that probably would have helped us on our on our sort of SaaS journey a lot earlier. Um, always what we had in mind, we just went a bit early. And I think the key to converting the sort of original MVP users was um, uh, to, to talk about the original problem, to talk about the original belief that if only you knew your target customers better, you would grow revenue faster. If only you could fill in the gaps in your data and have a way to plug in the gaps and add consumer voices where you have nothing today. If we could make that easy, um, you should really use it far more. And we went to our clients and said, hey, we're making this change. Um, we think you should do more of this. And we've actually got a really nice way for you to do that. How about it? And they responded very positively. And that worked out really well. All right. The website for anyone who wants to go check out is askatest.com. And I want to thank the sponsor of this interview. It's HostGator, hostgator.com slash Mixergy to get your website hosted. Jeremy, thanks for being on here. Thank you so much. Pleasure to be with you.